but we look at the world and Torah as being complementary. So, um, for example, you know, we when people find that kosher food or certain non-kosher foods are unhealthy, kosher food is healthy. So it's on one hand, there's this urge to say, oh. The reason why we have kosher food is because the Almighty wants us to be healthy. You know, that's a common theme that people say, oh, kosher was for back in the day, but now we don't need it because now we know what's really healthy, what's not healthy. Right? But there's an assumption baked into that statement. There's an assumption that there's one constant, and then and that would be what's the science or the natural uh, status of food. And the Torah is a way to navigate that most effectively. So if the pig is unhealthy and the Torah says, don't eat pig, it's like the Torah is telling us to avoid eating pig. When in fact it's possible, like they're complementary. If the world is God's handiwork and the Torah is God's mind, then the fact that the world, means the, the science, so to speak, tells us that pig is unhealthy and God tells you don't have it, that's complementary. It's not that one's a response to the other, rather that they too come from the same source and, uh, and therefore have the same properties. Does that make sense? Yeah. Makes sense a little bit, right? Um, and I think in that light, I think we could kind of launch into a very interesting problem that we have. Well, it's going to be a solution to an interesting problem that we have uh, as Jews. Um, you know, when we talk about Torah, what the role of Torah is in a Jew's life. Um, I know when we talked about it initially, uh, someone said, I'm thinking about you, Dave, that the reason why we study Torah is to connect to Hashem, to get close to Hashem. And I think it's a very good answer. Um, and that underscores the problem that we have, is that we have to get close to Hashem, but we have no idea how. You know, we have a hard time even conceptualizing or fathoming what Hashem even means. It's hard to find concrete, definitive terms to use as a baseline for discussion points. And yet we have to connect to that. Not only that, the Torah says that we have to love God. Now, love is a deep emotion. And you either love something or you don't love something. But how do you love something that you can't even understand? You know, there's a name of God. Huh? It's a problem. Uh, there's a name of God that's, that has four letters that we're not allowed to pronounce. And the reason why we're not allowed to pronounce it is because it's a reference to God himself, and that's beyond our comprehension. You know, the Talmud says that there are some things that our mind cannot grasp, and the infinite is one of them. And therefore, we can't talk about God directly because that just makes problems for our human brain. And not only that, we go so far as to say that we cannot even say that name of God because it refers to God himself, and that kind of engaging on that level is problematic for us. So we have a hard time even understanding what God is, and we're supposed to love him. That's another mitzvah, the halakta That's another reason for the Torah. Huh? That's another reason for the Torah, because we learn to love God by studying the Torah. Right? Okay, yes. well, how does that work? I agree with you a thousand percent. <clears throat> no, so, so what you're referring to is there's another mitzvah, especially mentioned eight times in the Torah, to go in the ways of God, to emulate God, to be like God. God's kind, we're kind. God's merciful, we're merciful, right? Etc. right? God forgives, we forgive. That is an idea that tells us we have to behave like God. But to love God, means it's a certain emotion we have to have. By the way, Maimonides tells us that what does it mean to love God? What is someone who loves God? What does he look like? Okay, so if you love God, it means that you, you, you love whatever is about him. And if you become like God, it means that you love yourself. So if you love oh, yourself... Okay, so that's, that, that's very clever. I like that a lot. So you're saying that... It says, Ahava is love, and Echad is one. Well, but then, remember, that's not... But that, that, that you may be right. That's very clever. But we have to explain it. You're saying in a deep insight, if I can repeat it. What you're saying is, we love ourselves. 
And if we make ourselves like God, then we'll love. We will still love ourselves. But by doing that, we'll de facto love God because we're loving something which is like God. Is that what you're saying? And that's a little bit of a circuitous way to get to love God. And by the way, I'm, I, what I'm saying, I'm, I'm saying the question that we're asking, you're giving a very interesting answer. And, every, and I don't think I, I've ever thought of that. Um, now, the, the Sifri, which is, um, which, is a sub, which is a sister text to the Talmud, the Sifri asks our question. We know we say this part of the Shema. You have to love God with, right, with, uh, with all your hearts, with all your soul, and with all your uh, money or, or resources. That's a mitzvah. We say it in the Shema. And it's, it's something that every, everyone knows. I don't know how to love God. How are we supposed to love God? We can't even understand it. We're supposed to love God. And then when it says, and it says the next verse talks about that you should study Torah, that tells you that's how you love God. Now I want to explain how this works. Is this what you said, Susan? That's what, yeah. Right. We have a mitzvah, which is a core mitzvah. There are six mitzvahs in the Torah that are, not, that, that are constant mitzvahs. Right? Six constant mitzvahs. One of them is to love God. At every second or every day, there's a mitzvah to love God. It's not one of those mitzvahs you do every Pesach. Ah, what do we do? Eat the matzah, you're done, right? Very simple. Clean cut, right? Buy the matzah. It's kind of expensive, right? But it's Pesach once a year. That's it, right? You put a mezuzah in your house, you're done. It's very kind of defined. This is a mitzvah that is ever-present. And there's no action that you do. So what it really is telling us is that this is a mitzvah that has to become second nature to you. Right? You can't always be concentrating on the loving God, right? It's not, if it's a constant mitzvah, you can't always be concentrating on the loving God, right? It's not, it's not right? You, you, you're living your life, right? What it means is, if it's constant, it means that it has to become second nature to you, and therefore you don't even need to think about it to fulfill it. So not only is it difficult for us to even understand how to do it, but it has. To, but it, how do you do it even once? That's a question, right? How do you even love God once? But now we're told you have to love God all the time, and it has become second nature. How do you do it with Torah? How does that work? So there's an interesting Rambam, Maimonides, and my grandfather was very fond of quoting this um, many, many times because I think more than what it sheds light about Torah, it sheds light about life as a Jew. What it is we're all here for. What's the big picture that really motivates and guides us and really is the underpinnings of life as a Jew. And the Rambam says like this, how do you love God? Or better yet, what is love of God? If you see someone who loves God, what will he look like to you? Will he be happy? Will he be sad? Will he he be, should be happy. He would be happy? Oh, Why? Be because he should be peace and <clears throat> content with his lot. But, you, but it's an intangible. It's an intangible. Okay. Uh, what do you say? Would, would, will he be, be happy, content? Dave seems to question that. Right. Love. What does loving God have to be with happiness? Have to do with happiness. If you if you love God, it means that in everything you see God. If you see an event, you see God in this event. If you see. But is that happy? Are you happy? Does that make you well, happy? It depends on the situation. Although you know that there's a master plan behind everything, yeah. but it brings your emotion up. Sometimes it's happy, sometimes it's surprise. Well, being content, being happy, because if you love God, you're content. Well, here's a question. Well, but is, is, if you love God, are you content? Or if you recognize that God exists, you're content. It means love is the emotion. I would say if you realize that everything's from the good, that's more kind of cerebral, right? It's in your mind. And if you realize everything is for the good, then even things that appear ostensibly to be bad, you'll say they're good. But it doesn't mean that you'll be emotionally happy, yeah, right? I mean, I mean, you can realize there's a God with, without... Um, I lost my thought. Um, without actually feeling it? No, no, you can, real, you can realize there, there... Just realizing there's a God may not make you content. You realize there's a God, but you... But you know what? You may not... But you can love God, and external events can make you unhappy. 
Okay, so okay, let me throw in another curveball here to this discussion. Okay, because this I think is gonna make it a little bit more interesting. <clears throat> There's a Talmud that talks about Olam Haba. Olam Haba is one of the most important code words in Judaism. Because it is the end game, the be end, the end all, right? This is it. This is what it's all about. This is the destination. And this, by the way, is a place of reward and punishment. This is the place. This is it. And the Talmud gives us a brief discussion of what it's like in Olamava for the righteous. And it says, first of all, there's no eating, there's no drinking, there's no sleeping, there's no standing, there's no sitting. Doesn't sound like the best place. You can't stand, you can't say, what are you doing? You're reclining. What is there? All there is, Sadiqim Yoshvim. The righteous are sitting. And their crowns are in their heads. Doesn't say on their heads, it says in their heads. Interesting. In their heads. In their heads. And they're taking the pleasure of God. And Talmud is saying, essentially, that the highest level of pleasure that's possible, the peak pleasure, is the experiencing God. That transcends everything that we can imagine. And that's what Lama buys. And says the Rambam, someone who loves God achieves peak pleasure. He uses the same words. What he's telling us is that loving of God, this mitzvah that sounds to us, yeah, we're content, we're happy, maybe we're not, right? That's the discussion. It says the Rambam, to have that experience and to live that life is the happiest, the most pleasurable life you could possibly imagine, even on planet Earth. Heaven on Earth. It's heaven, heaven on Earth. And it's, that's a very interesting wrinkle into the discussion. There's a mitzvah to love God. We have to do it. And most mitzvahs are, 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 are things that we have to kind of toil. It's not pleasure. It's, it's hard work. But ironically, we see that the hard work, right, the things that give us the most pleasure are the ones that demand the most work. Right? Someone talked about their kids earlier. Wouldn't we argue that your kids give you the most pleasure? Yeah, and they could give you the least pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> right. And there's a lot of pain involved with kids. So how is that possible? Is the pleasure or is the pain? Or is there is a pain? The answer is both. You can't have one without the other. Thus, the mitzvah, that's the, maybe the hardest one for us to achieve, loving God. We're so distant from God to begin with much less an emotional level. The thing that we're most distant from, the thing that's hardest for us to achieve, the tallest mountain in the, uh, you know, amongst all the mitzvahs that we need to climb, that's the one that gives us the maximum pleasure. And this is what the Ram says. And if we want to experience olam haba here, you can't do it. You can how so? With Torah. Now, now the question is how? So what? How does that work? Torah? You read the Torah? Yeah, it's interesting. It's fascinating. It's intriguing. It's, you know, it's expansive of your mind. But where is this pleasure? And better yet, how does this connect us with God? So I, I did a little shtick here. And I kind of, I only gave you part of the Ramam. Let me give you the full text here. Tell me if this is me. He says like this. In order to achieve this, in order to use Torah to achieve love of God, remember, what's our biggest problem with achieving love of God? We have no concept. We have no concept of what that even means. The Torah is a stand it's a surrogate for God himself. If we want to understand God, we can't go directly, so to speak, but the Torah, because it's God's mind, it has the same qualities as God. And therefore, we understand that, we understand Him. And that experience, that, that, you know, that rivals, that mirrors, that parallels the experience of experiencing God in Olam Abba. The peak pleasure. So, so what it's telling us is like this. Okay, we could have a very superficial discussion about God. We could have a very superficial discussion about Torah. We can do that. Does that bring us to God? Does that bring us to Torah? No. It's a starting point. Says the Ram, four steps. You have to think about Torah, which is active. 
you have to employ your mind. Most Americans don't know how to do this. Like, this is not a thing that, right? We're very, we're very receptive, right? We, we do passive thinking. You know, it's like you talk to kids and you say, which color do you want? You can't make a decision. Do you want green or yellow? That's easier, right? You know, because everything's being laid out for them, right? Uh, but to think on your own, that's a skill that's very hard for us. But that's just the first step. <laughs> you have to think in Torah. And then he says, Yisbonin. Now, I can't find a really good word for Yisbonin. Hitboninut. Because it's a deep, internal reflection, contemplation about something. To have some, If you have something that's been troubling you for years, and you think about it all the time, and you're trying to unlock a maze... And you think about it when you shower, and you think about it when you drive to the car, and you think about it as you fall asleep, and you have dreams about it. That's his bonus. That's deep internal thought. It's not superficial. It's not just not even active thought. It is where something is occupying your mind, even when you're not actively, even when you're not actively thinking about that. You know, you pull up the paper, you're thinking about something, right? If you're being misboned, if you're contemplating. It's not necessarily when you're engaging in an activity that relates to that matter. Even if you're involved in the rest of your life, it's always with you. It accompanies you. That relationship is this next stage, next, the next stage of Torah, where you're not just thinking deeply and actively. You're actually taking this with you. It's accompanying you. It, it, it kind of it pitches its tent in your mind. The Torah finds a place and it settles there. And you're working. Your brain's working even, you know, even when you're not necessarily directly talking about that. Stage two. Stage three, hasaga. Hasaga means an insight, an understanding, a eureka, aha moment where you get it. You get it. And it all clicks and it all makes sense. And you, when you've been working on it for months now, finally makes sense. You piece it all together. And what do you see? You see Torah. Suddenly, wow! Like what was a bunch of a jigsaw puzzle that you're putting together, and, and every piece on its own. It's like, where does this go, and how does this fit in? And you finish the piece, and it's a masterpiece. You suddenly see how everything fits together. It, it makes so much sense, and you couldn't believe how you didn't get it months ago. When you have that experience, suddenly it all clicks. Wow, this is Torah. Whoa. This is something way different than what we started off with. The depth, the profundity, the experience, the expansiveness, the exhaustiveness of what we're dealing with and how deep it goes is just mind-blowing. You're mind-blown, and that experience is the Rambam, peak pleasure. That is a little sliver of what it's like to experience God. It's so beyond where you would have imagined it to have been. It's such a transcendental experience where you totally were, that came out of left field, you know, that, that was incredible. There's no words to describe it. Is, is that the vacuous when you get the... We could say that. Well, maybe the vacuous is even a higher level. This could be love of God. Maybe the vacuous is when you're, maybe that's, that's a perpetual kind of such experience. It's a good question, you know. Those, these, these things seem very parallel. This process, I'm saying, this process is what Torah enables us to do. Um, but this is not, I'm saying, this is not like when Torah, if Torah is something that we do when we're in the classroom or when we're in the house of scholarship, right? Or when we're, right? If, that, if that's where it's limited, we'll never have this experience. But if we really engage in a serious and dedicate, dedicated um, pursuit of Torah. And we take Torah and say, this is the word of God. I want it to influence me. I don't want to try to shoehorn what I believe into Torah. Right? Under certain conditions, we could, we could get there, even today. Even today, we could get there. And I know, and I'm, I'm, maybe, this is, maybe this is me being arrogant or whatever, but I've experienced this. And it's as described. You know, 
it's just, whoa, like your, your life perspective is never the same. So right. the challenge really is to get to level stage two or level two to incorporate, <clears throat> to incorporate this into your life like second nature, like a subconscious thing. The love of God and, and through study of Torah. Well, that's, that's, well, that's well, so, well these four there. steps are with Torah. And the, the love of God will result from that. And, and it's, it's, it's love of God, but what it really is, is understanding of God. Because once you understand God, you love God. Those two will go hand in hand. It's not like you say, eh, I understand it, not my type. Like that's not that's not the way we work. Right. But I mean, you, in order to incorporate that into your subconscious mind, oh, it's work. I mean, that's that's a real. I mean, I, that's work. That's the real challenge. Like I said, it's it? very difficult, <laughs> and the yeah. degree of difficulty. That's why there's the payback, the you know the, you know, yeah. the big payout at the end. You know, the Ram talks about when he talks about Alam he says, "Listen, if you haven't experienced it, it sounds it's very hard to describe it, right? It's like he gives an example. He says." Imagine trying to explain to a blind person what color looks like. You can't do it. Unless you've experienced it, right? you have no point of reference. But this is what he describes. And essentially, I think the way, if we zoom out a little bit to our original um, um, beginning point, um, point of departure, if you will, the Ramam actually says something else. He says that there's actually three areas where we could do this. Torah is one. Right? You take Torah, you think. You take Torah, you think, and then you contemplate. You let it become permanently part of, uh, you know, of your zeitgeist. And then you have an insight, an incredible insight, and it's wow, and you can't believe it. And you have a brief touch point with the divine. That is the most pleasurable experience. You love God. That's love of God. Torah is one of them. You know what the other, one, the other ones are? Mitzvahs. And we think of mitzvahs as, hey, listen, you know, as a Jew, there's certain requirements, you know, to be part of the fraternity. You gotta do it, you know. But in reality, they're instructions from God. And they are directly tailored to make humans great again. Oh, that's a bad thing to say. <laughs> right? That's what it's like. We were great. When we were just a soul, we were great. We got a body and it went it went south. And the mitzvahs are tailored, are designed by the creator of our bodies and souls to bring us back to that glorious state. And if, if you really understand that, it'll make so much sense. You understand what we are and how the mitzvahs are directly designed to encounter or to engage with our problems that we have and the uphill battle that we have. Suddenly you'll see, wow, like this all makes so much sense and it's so much more deep and profound than I would have imagined. You know, we talked about in the past of the book that talks about the 248 mitzvahs, the 248 corresponding limbs. If you were the one who discovered, who went through, who spent your life trying to figure out what are these 248 limbs, what are the 248 mitzvahs, and doing all the research and scouring all of Torah to find what, how exactly it all fits in and how we can make ourselves perfect with mitzvahs. If you got that, you really understood what a mitzvah is. You understand how it changes who you are. And thus, you essentially can, uh, you know, you can reverse engineer from that how incredible, how incredible the wisdom is of, sorry about that, of, of, of God. And it's, once again, it's a brief touch point with God. And that experience is transcendental. It's beyond anything that we can experience, you know, carnally. And the last, by the way, is science. I think it's probably the easiest one as well. If you discover the atom, right, or if you discover subatomic particles, and your mind's blown, right? Everything that you thought about of how the world works now has to be scrapped, and we have to update everything. It's so much more complex than we imagined. We discover a cell. Whoa! If you know what a cell is, if, you know get get some you know get some uh, doctor or, or, or medical to describe exactly what happens in a single cell. First of all, how small it is, and all the machinery and all everything that's going on in there. If you spent your life and you had this discovery, suddenly, wow! It's such it's such it's so much more complex than what it seems on the surf on the surface. You know. When I look at someone, they look like a glob of flesh and right. 
And then you, you break it down, you break it down, you break it down. You see such ingenuity, such wisdom. You see, you're able to encounter the divine. Something that's so beyond what we could even fathom. And I had, you know, I had this little experience, and I'm not trying to say this, this is a rivaling experience or, or what the Ram was describing, but I recently went to an uh, ophthalmologist or optometrist. I don't know the difference. Sorry. Ophthalmologist is an MD. Well, I went to that kind of guy, right? And he's like, okay, we could either give you those drops, and then you won't be able to drive or look at anyone for five hours, or with this new technology for $39, we'll take the picture of your retina, of your whatever, of your optic nerve, and then you could just get out of here, no problem. I've been doing that for years. What, the drops? No, no, the, the machine. Is oh, the machine, drops. okay. That's terrific. So I said, sure, I'll pay the $39. Blazing green light, they take the picture, and I'm like, I want to see what it looks like. So I see the picture, I see these all these tiny little... Little little strands, little tiny nerves. Like you can't imagine how small they are in your eyeball. And like if one of those things, you just snip, snip one of those things, you're blind. You know. And I'm like, whoa! And we take this all for granted. You know, we just yeah, yeah. Of course you could see. Like you know, of course, of course, of course, of course, of course. We don't take the time to let in, to internalize what this really teaches us about the world and about, and about its creator. And if we spend time thinking about this, but especially if we hit the top, we have a discovery of our own through this process, we can encounter God. Quick question. Go ahead. Let's go back to Alamaba. Yes. Does it say anywhere here about Alamaba? So interesting. The Torah does not explicitly reference it. Right, but people talk about it. How do they know? Okay, well, first of all, the Talmud does bring about 15... Well, well, let me finish. The Talmud brings 15 references from the written Torah that prove without a shadow of a doubt that a Lamaba exists. Uh, Now, your question is, why does the Torah not explicitly say this? So so these are inferred. It doesn't say it explicitly. And we see, indeed, that uh, the, the Torah has policies with regards to making predictions, right? The Torah says, for example... Jews will go be kicked out of Israel and go back to the land. It's a very specific prediction, but it's also it's also falsifiable. It's also falsifiable, right? If the Jews were scattered and disappeared, the Torah could be scrapped as not being divine because the prediction was wrong. But we know the prediction is true because we exist in the world. We know the Jews went back to Israel, and that teaches us something very impressive, right? Imagine the Torah says, if you don't listen to the Torah, and then you die, you'll have angels, and they'll come after you with rods of fire and start smacking you and hitting you, and you better observe the Torah or else you'll in eternal damnation, fires and hells. And, right? Well, the Torah said that. You'd have no way to prove it, no way to disprove it. And then we'd all be handcuffed and forced to observe, because otherwise, who no one wants to suffer like that, right? But that's not what the Torah employs. The only predictions, the only world that exists within the written Torah itself, that is overtly, right, that is, you know, that, you know, that is, you know, just expressly uh, discussed in the, in the written Torah is planet Earth. That's not what the Torah employs. Other religions, they need to do that. We don't do that. That being said, if you read between the lines, there are many, 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 many inferences. And like I said, the Talmud in Sanhedrin, page 90 through like 92, spends a long time going through proof after proof after proof after proof after proof of the existence of the afterlife from the written Torah itself, not using any other sources. And not only that, the Mishnah says that if someone believes in the afterlife but doesn't believe it's written in the Torah, then they lose their portion in the afterlife. Really? Yeah. You not only have to believe in the afterlife, you have to believe that it's actually sourced in the Torah. Well, you've told us before that everything that's in the Talmud is sourced from the Torah. Oh, yeah. Well, it's everything, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, everything that's discussed there is brought down from something. I, uh, just a caveat to that, there are some things that are tr- that, that were transmitted orally. There's a few things, like, for example, the size of a matzah, how much matzah you have to have. The Torah never discusses that. That's like a tradition from Sinai. There are, the Rama brings a list, it's five or six things, it's not a lot of things, that have absolutely no reference oh, okay. or inference in the Torah, but almost every, but everything else has. 
um, so not including, of course, yeah, like how much matzah you have to have in Passover? Okay. So the three, sizes. The three yeah, but you have to have one bite, you have one bite, two bites, 500 bites, an edge volume, two edge volume, an olives volume. So every mitzvah, how much wine do you have to drink on? I know you've had a mandatory amount Oh, yeah. Yeah, you have to eat a certain amount. Yeah, because Kazayas is like ki is like a zayas is an olive, like an olive is one of the most common commonly used volumes of the Talmud. So the size of an olive, you have this like how much is an olive? I don't know, this big, right? Yeah. This big. So some things you have to have a kazayas of. Like if you want to, for example, uh, uh, you want to make, you want to bench, you want to do berkat hamazon, you have to eat bread, right? How much bread do you have to eat? Do you have one little morsel to make you have to bench or not? No, you eat a kazayas, you bench. Well, that, where does it say that? It doesn't say that in Torah explicitly, right? That's that's a tradition of Moses. So all measuring, all volume is not expressly written in the Torah. Um, there may be a reason for that. Maybe yes. Maybe no. Maybe it's because the fact that uh, it's change in size and right, so right. So for example, oh, I eat tons. I eat tons. <laughs> tons. Come in. I love. It. Yeah, but, but yeah. So the, the thing is like this. The question is like this. Or you know, you know, you. So, like the Talmud gives us the volumes, the form of the size of an egg, the size of a of an olive, the two eggs, three eggs, five eggs, right? But how big is an egg? Right. You go to the store, you say there's a small egg, the big yeah, egg, right. and Jump did the edge change in size or not? So there are people who say, hey, yeah, well, eggs of yesteryear were much much bigger. If so, and these things change over time, over a thousand, two thousand years. So the eggs that the the Mishnah the the Mishnah would be discussing are two eggs of ours. So we have to eat like a whole thing of matzah. You see people eating. And plus there's times, right? How, long, how quickly you have to eat it? Is it within two minutes? Is it within nine minutes? What's that? So you have, two, you have some people that say, I'm going to eat like yay big matzah in two minutes and I'll cover every possibility. And they're stuffing their face with matzah and trying to eat it so fast. And, right? But they're trying to do the mitzvah in its most perfect way according to all opinions, Right? But those kinds of things are not mentioned okay. in the Torah. So but besides for that, everything, everything else. Yeah. So, so to answer your question, Dave, the afterlife is referenced in the Torah, inferred in the Torah, but not explicitly discussed in the Torah because that's not what the Torah does. Um, there are other things. Like the Torah does not, for example, mention Jerusalem by name. But, the, well, the, 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 the Jewish Bible does many, many, many times. But the Torah itself... The, the five books of Moses do not mention it. And in fact, if you look at every time in the Torah, the Torah says the word Habmakom, the place. It's always a reference to Jerusalem. Hmm. So what's interesting is that uh, Abraham takes Isaac to the place, right? And then Jacob traveling, and he stops on the place, and he has a dream with the, uh, with the ladder. And Moshe tells them, when you build a temple in the place. So it's, so it's, it's all referring to the same place, but the Torah wanted that, that the final destination of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle, the final place, the resting of the temple, should be in the hands of the people at that time. So wherever you choose, so to speak, to, uh, uh, to erect the temple, that's where the temple's going to be. But it's like inferred already that it's the same place. The place, the place, it's the same place that's always being referenced. Um, but that's that. So, I'm sorry? That's right, that's right, that's right. So I, I think kind of getting back to where we started here. So science is another incredible way that we can connect to God, right? It's the Torah is, if the Torah is God's wisdom, God's mind, God's intellect, science is God's handiwork. And mitzvahs are God's instructions, Either way, these are ways which we, with, with which we can connect them, but also get a little bit of a picture of the scope, a little reference point for understanding what he's all about. Uh, and when we study Torah, <coughs> we have the opportunity and the potential to achieve uh, this incredible level of connecting to God, of connecting to Hashem, of understanding Hashem. Uh, that being said, if we really want to you know, achieve it in its most perfect sense, we would need to actually follow the rigid requirements that the Ramam uh, brings us. Now you say, okay, fine. So Torah allows us to connect to Hashem on this kind of superlative level. But I think even when someone studies Torah himself, I think this is kind of another, another kind of the, maybe the beginning, beginner track. Uh, someone studies Torah. 
there's an incredible Mishnah in the chapters of the Fathers that talks about what happens if you have ten people studying Torah, five people studying Torah, two people studying Torah, and even one person studies Torah, the Almighty is with him. And the Talmud says, from the day that the Temple in Jerusalem, the base of Medusha, was destroyed, the Almighty only has the four cubits of halacha, of, of Torah, in this world. Where can we find the Almighty in this world? So the song says, here, there, and everywhere. I don't know where the song got that from. But the Talmud says, what the Jews say, not the song, what the Jews say is that where can we find the Almighty? Within the four cubits of halacha. Within the four cubits of Torah study. So even if someone, even if someone studies Torah by himself, just man studying Torah, the Almighty is there with him. This parallels the experience of, uh, of, of the divine presence in the temple. Pretty remarkable. Uh, not only that, we say that the Torah is this tree of life. You know, imagine a uh, a crazy tsunami that's just sweeping people up left, right, and center. Terrible, 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 right? And then you see a guy clutching onto a tree, right? You stay above the water, above the chaos, right? The Torah is this tree. It's this tree of life that we that if you clutch onto it, you have the Torah, you have connection to God. Merely studying Torah, even if it's not on some superlative level, it's not this transcendental experience that's so earth-shattering, life-changing, and dramatic, and you know, and 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 rivaling Olam Haba, even if it's not that, it's still a way to connect to God. And now, so if it's a way to achieve love of God and it's a way to become close to God, it's also a way to return to God. There's an incredible uh, statement in the Midrash. The Midrash says as follows. So quotes a verse in Jeremiah, where the Almighty is lamenting, so to speak, that the Jews abandoned God and stopped observing the Torah. And the, the Midrash makes a little play on words, as if God is saying, if only... The Jews abandoned God, but observed the Torah. Which, on its face, seems weird, right? Yeah. How do you abandon God and observe the Torah? Good it would sound bizarre, right? Yeah. But let's say this did happen. It says like this. If they, if they abandoned God but observed the Torah, because they would study the Torah the light, the illumination that's contained within the Torah will bring him back to God. So I think there's, a, there, there's one element of connecting God, being close to God. The mind is with us when we study Torah. But even when we're distant from God, even when we're far from God, we abandon God. If we cling to the Torah, that will illuminate our path back. That will draw us back. And... What's interesting is that the top, the, if you take this midrash to its logical conclusion, uh, it implies that when the temple was destroyed, it was because they abandoned Torah. Because if they just abandoned God, it wouldn't have been destroyed. Thus, perhaps we could even say that clinging to Torah, even if we ignore God, which is bizarre, I know they have these stories uh, in you know, a world that doesn't exist anymore. But there used to be a world where um, there were people in yeshivas studying Torah who weren't observant at all. Uh, there used to be these legends, not legends, the true stories, of students who were in yeshivas, but because kind of the, the winds of change were so strong, they were not observant at all, but they loved Torah. And there's stories of people that were caught, so to speak, on Shabbos writing down Torah insights, right? right writing in there, because you know, the, the, the hallmark of a great Torah scholar or a great yeshiva student is how, you know, is, is their Torah novella, novella right? Their, their Torah, the Chedusha Torah, their insights, their innovative ideas in Torah and the, that they wrote down. You know, that's the, you know, that's the creme de la creme. They have boxes and boxes of Torah insights. And these are writing Torah insights on shops. Yeah. Right? Maybe the worst thing you could possibly do, right? 
as a Jew. You're desecrating Shabbos, and you're studying Torah. Very bizarre. Uh, we don't have that. Like I said it's oxymoronic. Uh, and I'm not trying to say that that was good. It, it's just a world that we don't have no, anymore. Oh, this is, we're talking about the you know, pre-war, pre-war Europe. The yeshiva world. The yeshiva world that existed. Oh, in Germany? Uh, in Germany, less so than, let's say, Lithuania and uh, Galicia. Huh? Yeah, early 20th century. Late, late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, it was a little bit different because we had a world wherein the, the yeshivas, the quality of the yeshiva students was vastly superior than it was than it is today, but the quantity was very limited. So you and, and the internal uh, um, chaos was much more amplified, or maybe it was not even existent today, uh, wherein you had warring factions within the same yeshiva. You have uh, influences where half the yeshiva just abandons and they say we want to become mathematicians. You know, you don't have that today. You don't have the same. Uh, intellectual trappings of the non-Torah world. You know, if someone today abandons Torah, it's not because they want to pursue a life in great wisdom. It's just not. Um, in you know, hundred years ago, that was a big deal. The the intellectual heresy, perhaps we call it, where someone would abandon God for you know to to become a mathematician or a scientist or something like that, uh, wherein. The, their pursuit of the intellect, so to speak, led them astray. But that, that, doesn't, that doesn't exist anymore. Um, but either way, like, we find this interesting dynamic that Torah itself can bring people back uh, to God. And, and lastly, this is something that my, my brother is very fond of quoting. Um, so you have a relationship with God. How do you preserve the relationship? You know, we talk about you know, marriage is maybe a good a good uh, doppelganger for this, a good parallel. So we talk all about, you know, there's a lot of books written, you know, how to, how to court, how to woo a prospective spouse, you know, um, the beginnings of a relationship. But we know that once you have a relationship, if you don't further develop it, if it doesn't progress, then it's likely to regress and get worse. And we know, like, there is, you know, half as many people getting divorced every year as there are getting married every year. So that means, just by rough numbers, that 50% of people that say, yes, till death do us part, actually are lying. Because, mm-hmm. no, it won't be death that will do them part. It'll be the law firm of, uh, I don't know, Katz <laughs> yeah, right. and Goldberg and Right? That, that's that's what will do them apart. And the question is why? It's a tremendous tragedy. And the answer is because to have a lasting relationship, it's not just about creating a relationship. It's about sustaining it. It's about nurturing it. It's about developing it. It's about deepening it. If it's not getting deeper, it's getting more shallow. If it's not developing, it's regressing. Uh, and we say that with God, right? Okay, we have an insight. You know, We're at Mount Sinai. <clears throat> And we experienced prophecy, and we just left Egypt, and we're eating manna, and this is just incredible. It's just such an experience. And then we have Moshe goes up, and we see the lightning, the fire, and the flames, and the chauffeur, and we, we see the Ten Commandments, and we die, we come back together. This is just the most transcendental experience the world has ever seen. And if any one of us were there, we would be deeply inspired. Well, we, we, we were there, our souls were there, but if in our consciousness, you know, if we experienced that, we'd be deeply moved and changed, and and we would vow to change our behavior, and we would be awed, we'd be shaken, like this, this would have, this would be life altering. And what happens forty days later? How does that happen? The golden calf could not have happened the day after Mount Sinai. I guarantee you that. Day after. There's no way that the inspiration of Sinai, the feeling that the people got at Sinai, would allow for such behavior. No way. So it was after the honeymoon ended. <laughs> exactly. So Forty days later, the inspiration, yeah, maybe some people were still inspired, but it wasn't maybe with the same intensity. The inspiration, that's the, that's the reality. The inspiration is dissipated. We're sitting here together. We're talking about Torah, right? Hopefully y'all are inspired. What happens when you walk at the door? 
What no, happens? We'll be talking about it at the con. Maybe. <laughs> no, we will be. Okay. Uh, that's great. But what, but what happens? Well, you go yeah. back to your routine. Yeah. And your well, what happens to inspiration? Where does that go? Well, it's it, like, it hasn't died because... Well, it hasn't died. It's filed away. It's one of those little tiny holes in the balloon. That's, it's not... It has, doesn't just disappear. But that's just the reality. That's the reality. It's the way it is. And it's like, it's like that, you know, in every area of our lives, right? You go to the doctor. The doctor says, okay, this is a healthy lung, and this is your lung. Continue smoking. You will die within 12 months. You're shaking. What do you mean? I have kids. I have a. I can't die. Never smoking again. Uh-oh. You walk out. Have a seat. <laughs> and you walk by, and you see, like, right? You, you, you're wafting in the aroma of the guy smoking. You're like, no, I'm not going to do that, right? But, like, you know, but what happened to your conviction? And you drive home, okay, well, I'm still not smoking. You take all your cigarettes, dump them in the toilet, right? Next day, come on. You wake up, couldn't sleep so well, you have your coffee. Yeah, where's that cigarette? You need it. <laughs> you need you need it. Ah, just one, right? No one ever died from one cigarette, right? But you were so inspired. Yeah, you were inspired. But what happens when the inspiration dissipates? You know? Maybe we'll play a little game here. Has anyone in this room? Huh? If you don't want to answer, you don't have to answer. Has anyone ever in this room ever committed to never text while they drive? No one's ever, ever committed that. to never text? No, no one said, no, I'll never do that? Okay. So this no, maybe no, no, I've, I've said it. You've said, said, it. said it. I've said okay, it. Okay, you've said it. But how about being stopping at a stoplight? Is that considered <laughs> texting while you're driving? No, if you're stopping. No, it's not. If you're stopping while you're driving. While you're literally moving. Okay, so, so maybe this is not the best example, but you know, you see, you know, you see someone who like, ooh, the car's wrapped the tree. I hope the guy's all right. I don't know, man. Yeah. I can't imagine someone made out of that tra- crash alive. I don't want that to happen to me. Uh-huh. I'm not texting and driving. Uh-huh. But you're running late. You want to tell the guy I'll be right there in five minutes. Uh-huh. You know, how many times? How many times a week you get the text? I'll be there in five minutes. Right? That guy's driving. I'll be there in five minutes. Right. And what happens is hopefully no one gets hurt, right? But the point is, is that life makes us forget our inspiration. It's just the reality. When we're inspired, you know, that's, that's, you know, that's the peak of inspiration. There's a shelf life, and it's going to start, the second the inspiration ends, it's going to start to dissipate. Does prayer, is that entering your equation? Well, okay, so, 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 so what's Torah? So we have the Jewish people of Mount Sinai. Right. They have Mount Sinai, but what don't they have? They don't have Torah. Moses going up to get the Torah. So they have 40 days of just inspiration. It's like energy. It's like, it's like empty calories, you know. It, it, it's great, but you're going to crash. And the Torah, the Torah's goal is to perpetuate that. The Torah is not about necessarily developing the relationship. Maybe it could be that as well, like we mentioned earlier. But the Jewish people on Mount Sinai, they didn't need to develop the relationship. Their relationship was developed. Ten plagues, the exodus, splitting of the sea, manna, they got the Mount Sinai. Like, they, they're on board. Once you're on board, how do you shield the relationship from devolving? My, gra- my brother is, is uh, want to quote my grandfather, talks about the Torah being a thermos. Right? He mentions that a lot. The Torah is a thermos that keeps the relationship hot. So the Torah is a 3,000-year thermos. You know, you, you give your kid the soup for lunch. It keeps it hot till, till one, right? The Torah is a thermos that keeps our relationship with God alive and vibrant for 3,000 years. If the Jewish people had the Torah, they wouldn't have sinned at, at, at the golden calf. They wouldn't. Because the relationship would have progressed and developed. They didn't have that, and therefore the relationship waned and dissipated. And there was room for that vacuum to be filled with whatever they did with the golden calf. Um, and I, I think that, you know, we talk about, you know, so this is, I think there's two ways to go with this. We could say, hey, okay, if you're inspired, do something about it. Don't just say, oh, I'm inspired, great. That, that, that will take you somewhere. It won't take you everywhere. You know, not all the Jews sin with the golden calf. 
some Jews sinned, and I, even the Jews that did sin didn't actually do idolatry. They did something more like a representation of God. I'm not trying to justify what they did. But my point is, is that inspiration is great. It has to be concretized with something, right? You have to say, okay, this, I'm inspired now. What do I do now? That's kind of the step we have to take on our own. That's number one. But number two, with Torah. Torah is preserving the relationship we have with God. You have a relationship. You develop a relationship. You preserve a relationship. Do you want to continue it? Torah. Thus, I think, in, in, to recap, you know, we could talk about four ways with which what Dave said on day one of this discussion. How, what's the Torah about? Connecting to Hashem. Well, yes, that's right, but it's, it's more granular. It's connecting to Hashem on this incredible level where you were able to achieve via Torah and indeed via science and, and, and mitzvahs, right? You're able to achieve an understanding, connection to God that parallels the experience of Olam Abba, which is transcendental. Number one. Number two, even if we just study Torah, it's not so sophisticated. It's not, we're, not, we're not spending six months on something. Study Torah, the Almighty is with you. Four cubits of, of Torah, Within the realm of Torah, that's where God is in planet Earth after the temple's been destroyed. And what about if someone's distant God? If only they observe the Torah, the Torah, the light, the illumination of Torah, bring bring him back to God. And lastly, okay, we have a relationship with God. How do we perpetuate it? How do we guarantee its continuity with Torah? You're indeed right. Torah enables us to connect to God in a multitude of ways. And I think that this... You know, and I've said this before, and I'll say it again. If we, for a second, considered or questioned the the power of Torah, I think we there's room to say that you know the obsession that the Jews have had with Torah is justified, <laughs> because it really is the be all end all. But this is not the end. We'll have more to discuss next week. Okay, great, great, great class. Thank you.